0: Oh, I feel like we should continue singing it. We have been talking about the mighty power of God. We've been talking about knowing God um, since the beginning of January and the importance of the quest of knowing God. And what Jesus said in John chapter 17, verse 3, about really the definition of eternal life. And that is, this is life eternal, that they may know you, the only true God. And Jesus Christ, whom you sent, and the concept of of knowing God is that it is a relational, intimate, intimate relationship. There are again multiple words for know in Greek. Two predominant words: the word oida, adon, and also the word gnosko, edon or oida, means factual knowledge, just to know something factually. And many people know God factually. They they know what the Bible teaches about it. And again, from my testimony that I've shared, I knew God for 23 years, factually. I went to church every Sunday. I know, in the snow, uphill both ways. And so, but I knew God. I mean, I, I, I knew that God was a trinity. I knew that Jesus Christ came to the earth. I knew that he died on the cross. I knew that he rose again from the dead on the third day. But I didn't know God. Jesus said, this is life eternal, that they may know you, have a relationship with you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That's why Peter, at the very conclusion of his writings to the, to the saints scattered abroad, said, but grow in grace and in the gnosko, in the intimate knowledge, the relational knowledge of your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's God's desire from the beginning is that he would have a relationship with you and I. If it was all about religion then Jesus wouldn't have said these people worship me with their hearts or with their mouths but their hearts are far from me. What he wants is your heart not just your mouth. And so as we have considered this quest of knowing God we looked at the existence and exclusiveness of God that he is and that he is the only one who is God that there was before him there were no gods, neither shall there ever be any after him. He is God, and he is God alone. We looked at the composition of God. And again, the, the, our, our, another one of the challenges that the difference between theology and diagnosis. that theology is the study of God, and we want to make sure that we're not just putting it together again against a bunch of factoids here, a bunch of data points. But the again, that's my word, I coined it, you need to put it in print so that we can get it in the dictionary, okay? Is... To know God, the God doesn't want us just to study him, theology, but to know him, the And so as we go through these, make sure, again, they're not factoids. But the composition of God is that God is one God, but that God has also revealed himself as what? Three. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Three, and yet, one. The triunity is a mind-boggling thing, but yet it is true. When Jesus Christ was on the earth, he was God encased in the flesh. He wasn't just a piece of God. He was, in the fullness, God bodily. And yet, there is a distinction between he and the Father. That is just overwhelming to my my finite brain. And then we began looking at the attributes of God. We looked at his natural attributes, the fact that he is sovereign, the fact that he he is limitless. We looked at his vocational attributes that he is the Creator, that He is the Savior, that He is the judge, and we have been over the last couple of months looking at his moral attributes. We've looked at the holiness of God, we looked at the love of God, we looked at the faithfulness of God, we've looked at the righteousness of God. We just um, concluded looking at the goodness of God. Today we're going to begin our last attribute that we 're going to look at. There are so many more attributes, but what I felt is that these were overarching concepts within these and so, as we looked at the goodness of God, we considered the fact that his goodness, he declares, to be broken down into his grace and his mercy. So, by looking at his good, the goodness of God, we considered the grace of God and the mercy of God as well. Today, I want to look at one. Probably, um, you haven't heard spoken on very much, if at all. And it, it started out with, it, we're going to refer to it as the fervency of God. But what I began looking at is the jealousy of God. The jealousy of God. Now, you say, we've got fervency up there. It's because, again, as you study, you want to go back where? To, To the Word. Find out what God says about himself in that. And as I began to study it, I began to realize that it's not really the jealousy of God, which we're going to see in a moment, that God calls himself jealous, and that he is a jealous God. But that in the Bible, the terminology that is used, and we're going to see those in just a moment, that the concept of jealousy is really a, two, uh, a two-pronged approach here. It's zeal, zealousness, and jealousy. Both are an expression of fervency toward an object or an individual. Does that make sense? And so that's what we're going to look at today. And in the definition of God's fervency, in the, in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew, it is expressed by the word chana, chana. Actually, it's not khana, but kana, kana, which means to be zealous, jealous, um, envious, or covetous. Okay? And so you can see, zealous, though, when we consider somebody having great zeal, we think of that as a what? A good thing. It's a positive term. But when we say that somebody is jealous, we think of that as what? Bad. Especially when we consider it from the concept of envious and, and covetous. But jealousy isn't, we're going to see, isn't all bad. I mean, there is a concept of good jealousy. You go kissing on my wife, and you, you'll find out there's a godly jealousy, right? Because I'm going to come and I'm going to deck you, because you have no place with my my wife. Make sense? Okay? So there is a good jealousy, and we'll talk about that in a moment. In the Greek, there is the word zelao, which means to be hot or fervent towards something, zealous, jealous, again, um, envious, or covetous. So words are synonymous coming through from the Hebrew to the to the Greek, and you can see that they both have this both... What is considered to be a positive and a negative context. And so we see some of these in the concept of um, jealous, this, this word, chana, um, with Joseph and his brothers. That when Joseph received the coat of many colors from his dad, right, and you can check this out later, okay, both in Genesis and they're um, looking at it in the book of Acts. But he got this, the, the coat of many colors from his dad, and then he had these dreams. Um, where God was telling him that he was going to be lifted up and his brothers were going to be bowing before him, and then the stars, you know, that the, even the sun and the moon were going to bow before him, who was what? His father and his mother's, right? And we're told that his brothers became what? Jealous or envious of him. Okay. Now, understand, even when the word envious is used then in these places, you can put in the word jealous, and it makes sense. We, we get it, okay? They had a fervency toward him. The problem is... That their fervency toward him wasn't positive. They wanted what he had. Does that make sense? They weren't happy that he had it. They didn't want him necessarily to have it. Rather, they wanted it themselves. And so there was this jealousy. This is that word Kana that's being used. Korah. Does anybody know who Korah is? Ah, good. He's a rebel. Okay, the rebellion. And when did he rebel? Anybody remember? Against Moses. Give me more details. Because I didn't read the story, so I need you guys to help me out. No, 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 seriously. That's right. Why do we have to follow you? Aren't we Levites too? I mean, we should be able to have this as well. And so, uh, Koran, Korah and and Dothan, I think was the other guy, um, Dathan, um, wanted to, to have the power, Right? We're told in the scriptures that they became jealous of Moses. They saw what God was doing through Moses, and they said what? We want it. it. And so they were zealous, if you would, for the power of God. That's a good thing. But they weren't really zealous for the power of God. They were zealous for them having the power of God. And so then it became their fervency was evil. Okay? Okay. Jewish leaders during the days um, of the New Covenant, um, of the New Testament, do you remember when they brought the the apostles in? And they they told the apostles um, that they they should no longer um, preach in the name of Jesus. We're told that they had great fervency, okay, toward, in in all this. Now, in that great fervency, you can, again, this is our word, okay, zeal, they had great zeal against Jesus. The disciples against the apostles. Okay, they had great zeal against them. Well, what is that? It's jealousy. Okay, you can put the word in there. They were jealous of the apostles. Now that really sounds weird at a, at a point. Like, why would that word be used at that point? Why do you think that the the, the Sanhedrin was jealous of the apostles? Yeah. Yeah, they couldn't perform miracles. These guys, are, these guys are healing people. They had tongues of flame, the Holy Spirit coming upon them. They're speaking in languages that they didn't know. Thousands are being saved. Thousands are being transformed. Lives are changing. People are following them. And the leaders wanted what? The people to follow them. Do you get it? So they were jealous. We don't think about it that way, but that's what God says. God looks at the heart, and he knows exactly what's happening. It wasn't that the, the, the leaders were jealous or zealous for the for the glory of God, they were fervent, if you would jealous for their own glory. Kind of interesting stuff. it is used the same words are being then being used for zealousness to be zealous. Think of Phineas Phineas was um, the the priest who went in and, and ran a um, the spear, thank you, that's the word, I was thinking sword, and it wasn't right, the spear through a man, and then through the woman, when they were engaged in an act that they shouldn't have been engaged in, because he was an Israelite, and she was a Moabite, okay? Um, They weren't supposed to have anything to do with them, and so he flaunted that sexual relationship, um, in front of everybody and took her into the tent and Phineas grabbed the spear went into the tent behind them and impaled them both to the ground and God says Amen and Amen now that's kind of rough in today's character right? seriously you read about you read about the guy in the newspaper doing that okay and is your first reaction going to be praise God for that man wow he had a great zeal for the Lord that's what Yahweh says. That's what Moses declares. That Phineas had a great zeal, a fervency for God. And Phineas turned back the plague from Israel because of his fervency or his zeal for the Lord. If you would, consider it this way. Phineas had a godly jealousy. Who was he jealous for? For God. That's exactly right. He was jealous for the glory of the Lord. It had nothing to do for himself. He wasn't gaining anything out of it. It was purely because these people were flaunting their immorality in the face of a holy God. It's kind of like David going before Goliath saying what? You're coming to me with a what? Sword and spirit, but I'm coming to you in in the name of Yahweh, in the name of Yahweh. I mean, you know, who am I, a dog? Do you come at me with you know with stones and a and a stick? Yeah, in a sense, that's true. You come with all this armament, but I'm coming in the name of Yahweh. I'm coming. I mean, think about it. We're not told this about David at that moment, but David was jealous for the name of God. He couldn't believe that the army would cower from the enemies of God and let God be blasphemed. And David rose up with great zeal and fervor for the name of his God and said, you come at me with a sword and a spear, but I'm coming to you in the name of my God. And today, I'm going to cut off your head and feed it to the birds. That's great print, isn't it? I mean, isn't that great stuff to see in a newspaper? a different day, huh? Say, oh, it's just a different day. It's not a different day. It's the same kind of day. We live in that kind. I'm not telling you to go into somebody's house and, and run them through with a spear and I'm not telling you to chop people's heads off, okay? But when's the last time you had fervency like that for God? When, when is the last time that you were you were that upset? For me, it was last Saturday when I read this thing. This, this, this chaplain who who declares that the, the word of God is nothing but a bunch of stories. And I know he's teaching that over and over again. And and I praise God that it, I wasn't the only one in the guests that was irate about this thing. You know? And um, listen, we live in a day when God's name is being attacked. And and we have got to have this, this zealousness, this jealousy for God. Elijah. Elijah in 1 Kings 19 Verse ten. You can look at this again later. We're going to look at some other verses, but this is all kind of preliminary stuff here. But Elijah, he thought he was the only one left. He ran. Remember, remember when we had the, the big the mountaintop experience at Mount Carmel, and and he had all the prophets of Baal there, and and he said, "You guys here, you 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 take the sacrifice. You choose which one of these calves you want, and and, and you go build your altar, and you you put it on there, and you pray." And, and, and then I'll build an altar, and I'll put mine on there, and the first God who answers by fire is the real God. And so he went and he built an altar right away, didn't he? No, he didn't. He went and he took a nap. Kind of sat in the shade of a tree and, and watched the show. Because the prophets of Baal went and did what? They went and built their altar, they put their calf on it, and they began to, do, they began to wail and to cry and to call out to Baal. And, and Elijah sat there to the side doing what? mocking them. Hey, what's the matter? Is he asleep? Maybe he's in the restroom, you know? Maybe you need to cry a little bit louder so he can hear you, you know? And so they, they begin to slash themselves, cutting themselves. And they begin to do all these things and try to get the Baal to, to listen. Baal doesn't pay attention. Because he's what? He's not good. Yes, right. he's, not, he's not God. And so, so Elijah gets up and he calls the people and says, come to me. And he puts together the old altar of Israel. He places 12 stones together. He has them dig a ditch, pour a bunch of water over his sacrifice. And then he cries out to Yahweh and says, Yahweh, God, this is what you've asked me to do. And so before all these people, reveal yourself to who, for who you are. And what happens? <coughs> And the sacrifice is just burnt up. And the the altar is burnt up and everything. And and the people do what? They fall on their faces and they cry, Yahweh, He is God! Yahweh, Elohim, Yahweh, Elohim, Yahweh is God! Yahweh is God! Yahweh is God! A great revival. And he runs down the mountain then, after the the storm is going to come. And he goes down and he finds out that Jezebel has heard what's going on, what happened up the mountaintop. And Jezebel, the wife of Ahab, says, Curse me, may it be so to me, if by this time tomorrow I don't have your head. And so what does Elijah do? He runs. He sees the power of God displayed with just a word. When's the last time you saw that? I mean, when's the last time you said, God... Prove that you're working through me, and let lightning split that tree. And it did. You probably never even had the the gall to even say that, right? I mean, we're all sitting there going, I don't know if I'd even do that. Well, Elijah just didn't do that. I mean, he had the stage set, okay, and had everybody come to him. So he sees that, and then he flees. Well, while he flees, he goes down under the terebinth tree, and God comes to him, and God says, Elijah, where are you? Worry? And he says, well, man, I'm, I'm, you know where I'm at. I'm here. And he says, and, and, and I've been declaring your word, but they have rejected it, and I'm now the what? I'm the only one left. I've had great zeal for you, is what he says. I've had great zeal for you, but now I'm the only one who's left. God says, don't worry about it. I've actually, I've saved some more. They're hiding right now. Obadiah is feeding them. You're not the only one who's left. But Elijah accomplished all those things. Now I understand, because God worked through him. But we're told by James in the New Testament about Elijah. In the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man, what? That failed much. Fervent prayer. Zealous prayer. Jealous for God. Zealous for him, not for me. But so many times our prayers are focused on me, not on the glory of God. And so we see the display of God's fervency then. And first of all, we see the fervency of God displayed in his zeal for his own person, for who he is. In the book of Ezekiel, chapter 39, verse 25, we read, Therefore thus saith Yahweh, the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, Now I will bring back the captives of Jacob and have mercy on the whole house of Israel and I will be jealous for my holy name. Now you need to understand as we're going to be moving forward here into into this, okay, that the basis of all this is that God's jealousy for you and I, which we're going to look at in a moment, is based upon the fact that he is jealous for what? His namesake. God, God is going to be protective of his holy name. Okay, We read in um, John 2 about Jesus being at the the temple. And he he comes to the temple and he sees all the money changers. And so we read, now the Passover of the Jews was at the hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. He found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. And when he had made whips of cords, he drove them out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the the changers' money, and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Then his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house has eaten me up or consumed me. Jesus comes into the temple. He sees what's going on. They've made it into a den of thieves. And what happens? He throws them out, but why? Why? He gets jealous for the name of God. The jealousy, the zealousness for God, for his Father. He walks in, he recognizes what the temple was supposed to be, and it wasn't. And it immediately drives him to righteous indignation. Does anybody know what the difference between righteous indignation and anger anger is? Anybody want to take a stab at it? Huh? Righteousness. Okay? You all, your attitude. That's exactly right. Okay? The term righteous is a dead giveaway, ain't it? Okay? You can be indignant towards something, but if it's towards yourself, it's usually just what? Selfish anger. But righteous indignation is when you see something, go back to the things we talked about with righteousness. Something that is going against the moral decrees of God, what God has declared to be right or wrong. When something goes against what God has declared to be righteous, and it causes you to be inflamed. You can't help but then have a great zeal or jealousy for God. Not to have what God's is God's, but to protect what is God's. Does that make sense? Are, are you tracking with all that? God's fervency is also displayed in his zeal for his plan. Okay, we're going to have these up here as well, but we're going to be turning in our Bibles in a moment here. It says, this shall be assigned to you. You shall eat this year, such as grows of itself, and the second year what springs from the same. Also in the third year, sow and reap, plant vineyards and eat the fruit of them. And the remnant who have escaped of the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward. For out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant. God says, now here's what's going to happen. Okay? These are the things I want you to do. Here's what's going to happen. Why? And those who escape from Mount Zion, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will what? Will do it. Because God in his, zealousy, his zealousness, God in his jealousy and his protection of his people is going to accomplish it. God will accomplish his plan. As we went through the book of Revelation last year, and we saw the things of the future events that still are yet to be, you can take it to the bank that it will happen. Why? Because the zeal of God will perform it. Isaiah 9, verse 6-7. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. We sing that all the time at Christmas time, Right? And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward even forever. Why? Because the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform it. You do not have to worry about the future. Because the zeal of the Lord of the hosts is going to perform it. It's a done deal. The fervency of God is displayed in his zeal for his people. Again, in the book of Isaiah, chapter 42, we read, Yahweh shall go forth like a mighty man. He shall stir up his zeal like a man of war. He shall cry out, yes, shout aloud. He shall prevail against his enemies. I will bring the blind by the way they did not know. I will lead them in the path they have not known. I will make darkness light before them and crooked places straight. These things I will do for them and not forsake them. The Lord is going to go forth In his what? Zeal. And in his zeal, what's it say that he's going to do? He's going to take care of his people. He's going to bring his people back. Listen, God has set his affection upon you. He has loved you with an everlasting love. And he will accomplish for you what he's declared that he will accomplish. There are times when you may feel like you are out in the wilderness times, I mean, you may have gotten yourself into an exile, if you would. I mean, why, why, was, why were the, the Israelites, why were the Jews in exile? Anybody know? Because why? They forsook God. Yeah, just bring it down. They, they, they sinned. They erred. They rebelled. In God, Hebrews chapter 12, right? First Corinthians 10, Hebrews chapter 12. God does what for those who are his children? He chastises them. And God disciplined his children. And he sent them into exile. Into Babylon. But he says what? I'm going to bring you back. I'll bring you back. Why? Because you're mine. You're mine. God is jealous. The Lord avenges. The Lord avenges and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries and reserves wrath for his enemies. Now, context here in the book of Nahum, who are the enemies of God? Who do you think the enemies of God usually are manifested as? People. But give me a name for those people. No? No, no. You're you're being too specific. They're the enemies of his children. The enemies of his people. Okay, So the Amorites, back then, true. Here he's talking to the Assyrians, with the Ninevites and such, okay? But the fact is, that they are the enemies of his people. And so, in a sense, what God's saying is, vengeance is mine, what? I will repay, saith the Lord. Don't you remember that from Romans chapter 12? Where, where God, where, where Paul, God speaking through Paul, says that, that we're not supposed to, to extend our wrath upon our enemies, but rather we're supposed to what? To, to love our enemies, right? Why? Because vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. I don't have to worry about taking vengeance out of my enemies. God's got my back. Do you get it? So, ultimately, unlike Jonah, what should I desire for my enemies? mercy, good, okay, mercy, grace, that brawls down, bring mercy and grace to come together in redemption and salvation. Yeah, I desire for my enemies to be reconciled to God, because when they're reconciled to God, guess what? They're no longer going to be my enemies. Now, isn't that cool? And so I think I've shared somewhere during the course of this this series about the, the, the pastor in, in India, who's an Indian pastor, who was ministering in the village, and had a fruit stand, and this is a real story, this isn't just made up, this is true, and, um, but the, the Hindi um, didn't like the fact that he was there, and so they hired some guys to literally take him out, and so they destroyed the fruit stand, and they took him into the hut, and they tied him to the, to the, the middle stake, and they cut off his right arm and left him to bleed to death. His wife happened to come in, found him, stuffed the arm, got him to uh, a medical something rather. They were the clot, the that, and and he was speared. He was saved. He was uh, he lived. They went back to the village, to the same village. Built the fruit stand again. Began to minister in the hut again for the church. And that guy that cut off his arm got saved, and is now a deacon in that church. That's cool stuff. But it all depends on who you are allowing to handle the wrath. The zeal. Do you get it? Your zeal should not be for yourself, but for God. God ultimately has your back. Now, the fervency of God is displayed in his jealousy for his children's affections. This is where we want to spend a little bit of time looking at some passages, okay? Um, The time that we have left. Let's turn to Proverbs chapter 6. To Proverbs 6. I know some are saying, man, that was long enough for the message by itself. And now we're just starting. That was kind of like the hors d'oeuvres, you know? We were just kind of, you know, kind of at the table, just kind of snacking, you know? So now we get to, to, to start turning the pages and, and reading. Proverbs 6, beginning of verse 32, says, Whoever commits adultery with a woman lacks understanding. He who does so destroys his own soul. Wounds and dishonor he will get, and his reproach will not be wiped away. For jealousy, this is our word, kana, for jealousy is a husband's fury. Therefore, He will not spare in the day of vengeance. He will accept no recompense, nor will he be appeased, though you give many gifts. Okay, now I understand. You say, man, how does this fit in here? This is an illustration. Talking about the power of jealousy, the fury of it. Okay? Again, as I said earlier, there's a godly jealousy, right? Is this guy talking in here, does he have a godly jealousy or an ungodly jealousy? It's godly jealousy. It's a godly jealousy. Okay? Why? Because it's his wife. God himself said way back in the beginning, for this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother shall be cleaved to his wife and the two shall be one flesh. And Jesus said in Matthew 19, therefore what God has put together, let not man put asunder. Right? And so not only are you messing with my wife, not are you messing with my possession, but now you're also messing with what? With God. No, not just me. You're messing with God as well. I mean, it's not just mine. See, I'm already saying it's mine. It's my my wife, my possession. My 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 my. Now, hopefully, I'm I'm caring about my wife too. You know, but she's mine. But not only is she mine, she was given to me by God. Okay, God says, whatever God's put together, let not man put asunder. Okay, and this illustration is is critical. For us to understand the, the fervency here, the fury of this man. Okay? I mean, guys, put yourself there. Okay? You walk in the back room, and I'm kissing on your wife. And you come back and say, hey, Bob, when you're done, can I talk? Can we talk outside? It's not going to happen that way, is it? I mean, all of a sudden, there's going to be confrontation. You know? Whether we like confrontation or not, it's going to be confrontation. It's not going to be a good thing. Okay? So, put that in your mind. The reason I bring this up is because this is the illustration that God uses for him and us. God has declared himself to be the husband, and we are the bride. It is the illustration that God the Father uses with Israel and continues to use with the church. Ephesians chapter 5. Wives, submit unto your husbands as unto the Lord. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify her, um, that he might present her to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle. And then he goes on, he says, um, about no man ever yet hated his own body and his own flesh. He says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall be cleaved to his wife, and, sh- um, and the two shall be one flesh. Now this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Now wait a second. We understand... leaving the the wife and the being joined together and being one flesh is kind of like the the consummation of the marriage, right? God says that's a picture of the intimacy that he wants to have with you, with the church. And just as that husband in Proverbs chapter 6 will be furious in his jealousy for the purity set-apartness of his bride. So God has that furious jealousy for your set-apartness and purity for him. He has betrothed you to one husband. And who is that husband? Himself. To Christ, but that's God himself, right? And so, again, God walks in the back room and you're hugging all over another God. God says, hey, when you're you're done hugging all over that God, can can I talk to you out here? Do you think it happens that way? No, we're going to see that in just a moment here. Let's turn to the book of Exodus, chapter 20. When, When God declares something in his word, is it important? If God declares it twice, do you think it's, still important? It's probably more important. If God declares it um, multiple dozen times, what, what, do you, what do you think on that one? I think he wants to get our attention, huh? So let, let's begin in Exodus 20 in the, the, the 10 words of the covenant, the 10 commandments, where we see in the, um, the second commandment, the first commandment is you shall have no other gods before me, right? The second commandment. It says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image, this is verse 4, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or in the earth beneath or in the water under the earth, you shall not bow down to them nor serve them. Why? For I, Yahweh, Eloheinu, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. Though you and I wouldn't say this, I don't think you would say it. If you went and cheated on your wife or on your husband and you were caught, would you say that you were doing it because you hated your spouse? No, most people don't. I mean, most people aren't there. Most people, when I go through marital counseling, it was a matter they they gave into the temptation, the lust of their flesh. They really do love their spouse. They don't want to lose their spouse. They'll do anything to keep their spouse. Okay? They love their spouse, okay? but, but they love themselves more. And, but their spouse is sitting there across the table, of course, not right next to them, but across the table, right? The spouse is looking at them, saying, What? You liar. Do you feel loved at this moment? No. What do you feel? Betrayed. Betrayed. You feel hated. God makes it, puts it right out. Jesus does this as well in his teachings as well. Jesus said, if you don't hate your father and your mother, then you really don't love me. Now, he's not saying that you really have to hate these people, but the whole point is if you love them, more than you love me, you really what? You don't love me. You hate me. If you're following after other gods, God says you hate him. He says he's going to visit the iniquity upon the fathers to the, and the sons and the children to the third, fourth generation of those who hate him. There, there is no gray area with God. There's a line. Between love and hate. To not love is to hate. We like to blur lines. It makes us feel good. That's just a what? A gray area. Now I can't tell you in your life before God all the time where the line is for you. Okay, That's between you and God. But I can tell you this. God's got a line. And it's amazing to me how many people know the line. Wednesday night. With all the, the kids thing, right? Um, I'm trying to think exactly what happened. But I, I turned around, I came in, and, and one of the kids kind of turned and like, hide what they were doing. Now, they were doing something they were allowed to do. But the minute they, they, they didn't know that, okay? So they tried to hide it. So what did that communicate to me? They're doing something that they thought they shouldn't do. I was okay that they did it. It wouldn't have bothered me at all that they did it. But they thought what they were doing was disobeying. So in God's eyes, what was it? Disobedience. In the book of Romans, we're told, if you doubt, you what? You sin. Do you get it? There was a line. Now, the line was different for that kid than everybody else in that room. Do you get it? Because you know how to do it. But at that moment, that that kid didn't realize it and he thought he was trying to get away with something. What was okay for everybody else, now was what? Sin for him. And in making the decision, making the choice to go across that line, I know we don't want to hear this. He made the decision to hate God at that moment. We wouldn't say that. There's no way that any of us here today would say that. But that's what God says. I want you to love me with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind. And the book of Mark includes strength. How much does God want you to love him? With everything. And he is jealous for your affection. That you would not share that affection with anybody else. Even my love for my wife, now listen to this, and we'll talk about this a little bit more next week, ought to be an extension, not a replacement, of my love for God. Do you get it? It's not sapping from my love for God. It is actually overflowing from my love for God. Now that's a hard one to grasp. You get a hold of is not it, isn't it? Because we think, and Bob struggles with this, the division of my attention. There should be no division in my attention. But rather, because of my love for God, I love my wife as Christ loved the church. And so it's not a drain on me. It's not a drain on my love for God. Rather, it's an extension and expression of my love for God. Turn to chapter 34 of Exodus. Take heed. Chapter 34, verse 12. Take heed to yourself, lest you make a covenant with inhabitants of the land where you are going, lest it be a snare in your midst. Stop for a moment. Take heed, lest you make a covenant. Lest you make a what? A contract. An agreement. Be careful when you go out into the world, is what he's saying, that you don't make an agreement with them. That you don't start doing business with them, in a sense. Okay, Now, I'm not saying cloister yourself away. But here's what he's saying. Why? Because it will become a snare to you. But you shall destroy their altars, break their sacred pillars, cut down their wooden images, For you shall worship no other god, for the Lord, whose name is jealous, is a jealous God. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and they play the harlot with their gods, and make sacrifices to their gods, and one of them invites you to eat of his sacrifice, and you take of his daughters for your sons, and their daughters play the harlot with their gods, and make your sons play the harlot with their gods. Listen, he says, be careful, you're going to go out to the world, and you're going to start to want to look like the world. But offer your body like a living sacrifice, which is holy and acceptable, a reasonable act of worship. And don't be conformed to the world, but rather be transformed in the renewing of your mind. Sound familiar, right? Romans chapter 12. It's the same concept. He says, listen, don't go out trying to look like the world. Don't try to grab the practices of the world. He says so in the book of Jeremiah as well. Don't take the ways of the Gentiles. Stay away from them. Why? It's a trap. Once you take that step on that slippery slope it's easy to take the next step and then the next step and then the next step and before you know it that bear trap has got a hold of that leg and you can't get out because there you are. Churches all around I believe have fallen into that look into the world how they're supposed to run the church, the corporation, the business, how to make it successful, how to get the crowds, how to get the money. Now, understand, I want to see the kingdom of God expand. Okay, I don't want to hide behind the the righteousness side. But the other side is we've got to be careful of what practices we're seeking to use. Because if the goal is is to have numbers in the church facility. To have corporate success by having a good um, financial plan. And my ultimate goal isn't to be true to God's word and to his glory. Then what will give way? God's word will give way. Do you understand? Because I know from God's word that wide is the gate that leads to destruction and narrow is the path that leads to salvation and few there be who find it. So how, I mean, and this is not a cop-out, this is a fact. Statistically speaking, how many people are going to get saved? Not many. God said so. I didn't say so. i It's not a cop-out. God basically said so. God said it's going to be a narrow way. It's a narrow path. Few there be that find it. Oligas. Few. Just a little. That, that are going to find it. And I still go out trying to find those few. I'm going, to, I'm going to keep giving the gospel up. I'm going to sow the seed. Maybe God will have a, a big portion in Augusta and a very little portion someplace else because we're being faithful to, to go on to the harvest. Does that make sense? But the fact is, my goal isn't that we be a church of a thousand. My goal is what? And hopefully it's your goal too. That we be true to God's word and we give him the glory through the proclamation of his truth to his people into the world and so our desire as we declare in our constitution and on the church is that we want to love the Lord our God with all of our heart soul and strength this is the first and greatest commandment that's what he asks us to do and his word by teaching it to our children and modeling it in our lives so that the world will know that he is God that's it that's what he's asked us to do. And God is jealous for your affections of what you're going to love. There are a lot of passages here on your sermon note sheets. You can see Deuteronomy 4, 5, 6, 29, 32, 1 Kings 14, Psalm 78, 1 Corinthians 10. In First Corinthians 10, God's, God says through Paul, you cannot serve, you cannot eat from the table of demons and the table of the Lord at the same time. Where are your affections? Right now, what do you love? What do you love the most? I mean, if you had the option, somebody gave you the option between going to church and doing X, Y, or Z. You can fill in what X, Y, or Z is. It's different for each of you. Which one of the X, Y, and Z would take the place of church for you? Gathering together with other believers to worship God. Which of A, B, and C is enough to keep you away from being in His Word every morning? What about G, H, and I keeps you away Wednesday night from gathering together for prayer and study? What about L, M, and N? You know, those are the ones that, that keep you from. Telling other people about God and, and what he's done for you. Which, what is it in your life that has greater affection, that you have greater affection for than God? Those are idols to you. Those are things that you have raised up to love more than you love God. And you say, wow, wow, that's, that's really radical. That's really almost legalistic. It's not. God said the greatest commandment is to love him with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. He didn't say 90%. Just love me most of the time. Love me Sunday morning and I'm okay. You can love whatever you want the rest of the week, but just love me on Sunday morning. He didn't say that. Rather, over and over and over again to the children of Israel and then into the church God says, I want it all. I want it all. What am I giving him? So, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. How many of you today would declare openly that you are a fool? (laughs) Not none of us. I mean, I don't put my hand up either. Well, okay. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And we said, "What knowledge is what? Yada is to know God, right? I mean, it's it's intimate knowledge." So, how has the weekly consideration of God and His attributes affected your life? Has it? We have now spent the last seven months looking at God. We have considered who He is. We've considered how He has expressed Himself to us. We've considered His moral attributes. Next week, we're going to finish up on this looking at the fervency of God with our reflection of it and, and how it applies to our life. Has it affected your life at all? Are you growing in your worship of God? Do you desire to spend more time with Him, glorifying Him for who He is? Do you want to be in the Word more, reading it, so you can know Him deeper and deeper, growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? To Him be glory forever. Amen. Do you want to know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings? Are you pressing toward the mark for the prize of the high call of God in Christ Jesus? Are you seeking to offer your body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable act of worship? Not conforming the world, but putting it aside, putting off the old man, putting on the new man that you may be restored and, and renewed in your mind. Has it affected you at all? And this is not me beating on you, it's just challenging you as God has challenged me. Listen, I can put it to you, but you know what? Be not many masters, James 3.1, because such have what? The greater condemnation. And by your own words, you will be judged. Okay? I understand that. I'm the one that's teaching you. I'm the one who's putting it out. So I'm standing before God. How much has my life changed in the last seven months? Again, if you feel like you're there, we talk about it in Sunday school, right? If you, if you feel like you've You've got it all. You've reached the mark. You're wise in your own eyes. And you've just shown how far you've fallen. That's what God says. It's not what I say. Our God is a jealous God. He will not share you with another. I, I don't know how you feel about that. But I know how God has declared. And you cannot serve God in materialism. That's that word mammon. Mammon is the things that money buys. We bring it into our current vernacular, it's materialism. You can't serve the things of the world, materialism, and God at the same time. You just can't do it. You can't. You have to make a decision. Are you going to serve God, or are you going to serve worldly things? There's, again, there's, there's no gray area. And so as um, Joshua declared to Israel when he was talking to them about the idols and the worships and who they were going to love and who they were going to follow, Who they're going to have affections for. He said to them, Choose ye this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. Who are you going to serve? Not just with your mouth, with your life, with all of your affection, with your zeal, with your jealousies, the fervor, the fire that burns from within. What has your desire? What sets your soul on fire? Let's sing that. Um, it's in your in your boltons.